0: God, we thank you for the meal that we've enjoyed, uh, that we've participated in, that we've been blessed by. We thank you for our togetherness in Christ, and we're grateful for our togetherness with you, that you have reached out to humanity in your grace. Help us to be attentive now to you through your word. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are good and fertile soil to receive your word for us. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray in any way from your word, may they be immediately forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So reading from the Gospel of Matthew, you remember the birth nativity uh, accounts of Jesus show up in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew. Matthew is the one who talks about the Magi. So beginning at chapter 2, verse 1, listen closely. This is the Word of God. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea where the time of King Herod, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? Hard question for Herod to hear. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, as Gladys spoke about earlier. And then having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. And now before we get into this, to the heart of this passage, uh, a few points must be made. First, the Magi were never kings, though a hymn writer many years ago took the liberty of calling them such, nor does Matthew call them wise per se, though we could say that anyone who follows God's prompts is not foolish, but the Magi were magi, it's a Greek word that can be Translated as teacher or priest or physician or fortune teller or sorcerer, depending on the context. But in this context, most likely means astrologer. They were astrologers who paid attention to the divine. And now a second point, the Magi never went to Bethlehem. Though they had been incorporated in the countless nativity scenes, they didn't make it to the manger. We can easily piece together enough of what Matthew tells us to know that they arrived maybe a year or at most two years after Jesus was born, but they arrived nonetheless. Third point, it is no small thing that the Magi were foreigners, even pagans in fact, Everyone else in the birth narratives, in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, everyone is Jewish. But God led the Magi to his son in order to make clear in another way from early on that Jesus would be, as Isaiah declared over and over, a light to the Gentiles also for everyone. And then fourth. Some recent scholarship has suggested that one or more of the Magi may have been a woman. And the word Magi actually allows for that in the plural. And these scholars make an interesting case. On the other hand, there is fairly solid evidence beyond just tradition that the Magi were not women because... If they had been wise women instead of wise men, it's been said, they would have asked for directions and so arrived on time. They would have actually helped deliver the baby instead of just watching and standing by. They would have cleaned up the stable so it wouldn't have been a mess. They would have made a casserole and they would have given truly practical gifts rather than gold, frankincense, and myrrh. On the other hand, if they had been women, these things or things like these would have likely been heard from them as they departed. Did you see the sandals that Mary was wearing with that gown? That baby doesn't look anything like Joseph. Can you believe that they let all these disgusting animals into the house? I heard that Joseph isn't even working right now. You want to bet on how long it would take until you get that casserole dish back? And I can say all of these things because Karen's homesick this morning. Otherwise, I'd be sleeping on the couch tonight. To the main point, the Magi came. They were led, they arrived with one primary mission and purpose, to worship the one who had been born, the one who had been born to be king, king of the Gentiles and king of the Jews. The Magi did not come because that's what they were expected to do. They came to worship. They didn't come because that's what their parents did and because, quote, that's what we've always done. They came to worship. They didn't come in order to bring their children as good and noble of a reason as that may have been. They came to worship. They did not come to see. They did not come to be seen. They came to worship. They did not come even just to bring or deliver gifts. They came to worship. And so while we may come or gather for any number of reasons, may the chief among them be to worship God in Christ. There this is not just a service. I have to remind myself in the way that I speak and that we speak. This is a worship service. We do a lot of things when we're together here on Sunday mornings and on the campus on Sunday mornings. We do a lot of things that are good and important and valuable. But the primary reason that we gather is to worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But why and how? The Magi came to worship because they knew that a king, a special king, a unique king, a king like there'd never been before, had been born. They understood this somehow through the stars, and through direct revelation from God. 2,000 years later, we worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, because of Jesus' miraculous birth. But more than that, because of the person that he became, and the things that he did, and the things that he said, and the way that he was with people. We worship Jesus not just because of his miraculous birth, with all of the miraculous elements around it, but we worship him because of the ways that he demonstrated and embodied the God of eternity, the God of the cosmos, and his kingdom that was coming. We worship him because he died on our behalf, which we celebrated here, because of his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. We worship Him because He is risen. We worship Him because in Christ we see the God who is eternal and omniscient and omnipotent. We see a God who is holy and grand and just and majestic. It is for all of those reasons that we come to worship. Everyone is going to worship something. Everyone is going to worship someone. Who is it that we will worship and why? There is a throne in each of our lives that is greater and higher and larger than all of the other little thrones in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. And whoever or whatever is on that throne is the thing or the one whom we worship. It is the thing or the person to whom we give the most attention, the highest priority, the highest place. It may be revealed in the payments from our checking accounts or the lines on our credit cards. It may be revealed from what we post on social media or how we choose to live, where we choose to live, the people with whom we choose to live. What is it, who is it that above all else and above all others you worship? Every one of us worships something. We are designed, it's in our DNA to worship something. The Magi worship Jesus. They brought gifts. They bowed down. How might we worship God and Jesus? When we have opportunities to give, not gold, frankincense, and myrrh, maybe modern monetary instruments and other things, when we have opportunities to give, those and that giving can be acts of worship. They can be. In a few minutes, we will be reminded of a little boy who had no... Monetary gift to bring, but instead brought his musical gift as worship, as an act of worship. And worship is an act, it is action, it is volitional and voluntary, an act of the will. Worship does not just happen, we decide to worship God in response to how we have experienced God and how God has revealed himself to us. Worship is an action. In the words of Warren Wiersbe, worship is the believer's response Of all that he or she is, mind, emotions, will, and body, which brings to mind uh, Deuteronomy, Moses, and then Jesus after him, proclamation that the greatest of all of the commandments is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength, all of your faculties. Worship is the believer's response to all that he or she is. uh, uh, Response of all that he or she is, mind, emotions, will, and body to all that God is and says and does. This response has its mystical side in subjective experience, yes, but also its practical side in objective obedience to God's revealed truth. It is a loving response that is balanced by the fear of the Lord, and it is a deepening response as the believer comes to know God better. And in the words of Byron Spradlin, worship is the intentional attitudes and actions, willful, volitional, of focusing on God that grows out of the foundational motive of deep and wonder-based gratitude to God for His salvaging and sustaining us though it may be prompted by the Holy Spirit within a person, and maybe even seem at first to almost be spontaneous, that worship is an act of the will cannot, I think, be emphasized enough. That worship is an act of the will cannot be emphasized enough. That at least was my experience at the age of 22. I had grown up in the church I had been to Sunday school from the youngest age. I even sang in the children's choir against my will for a year or two. I went to youth group. I was the president of the youth group. My youth group had officers. I went to countless Bible studies. I went on mission trips. I had led mission trips. I had been to a lot of church services, worship services. I had sung a lot of songs. But I don't know if I had ever before worshipped God until one day I was at a gathering with a bunch of other college students and something clicked. And I understood for the first time worship. And more than that, I worshipped The God whom I had known, the God who had been revealed to me, the God with whom I had interacted, the God whose words I'd studied, the God for whom I'd advocated, the Jesus whom I'd tried to be a disciple of, for the first time worshipped him. It has been said that being in a sanctuary makes a person a worshiper of God about as much as being in a garage makes a person an automobile. In other words, it doesn't. Worship is not dependent on or a function of being in a sanctuary. Though being in a sanctuary with others and gathered around God's word and table can be conducive to such. And nor is worship dependent on music of any sort, including one's personally preferred style of music played on one's personally preferred types of instruments and led by one's personally preferred types of people. The magi, you notice, had no songs, no music, no band, no choir, no organ, no guitars, not even drums with which to worship Jesus. Though all of those things can be conducive to one's worship and quite enjoyable. But worship remains an act of the will in response to who God is. In the words of the New Zealander Oswald Sanders, who for many years was the head, the director of China Inland Mission, worship is the loving ascription of praise to God for what he is in himself and in his providential dealings. It is the bowing of our innermost spirit before God in deepest humility and reverence. Worship is the adoring contemplation of God as God has been pleased to reveal himself In his son and in the scriptures. And something that Sanders says hits the nail on the head. It is the bowing of our inmost spirit before God in deepest humility and reverence. It is the bowing both of our spirits and maybe also our bodies. There are several Greek words that are translated worship in the Bible. But the most common of those words, and the word each time in Matthew 2 for worship in verses 2, 8, and 11 that we've read, is the word proskuneo, which is a compound word, the two parts of which mean first toward and then afterward kiss. And those words, as you know in English, when compound words come together, take on a whole new meaning. And in the Greek context, they mean to not only literally kiss toward, but to kiss someone's hand or to kiss someone's feet. If you uh, open a Greek lexicon and look up proskuneo, you will come up with these definitions. To kiss someone's hand in reverence, to touch one's head to the ground as an expression of profound reverence. To kneel or lie prostrate before someone as a means of showing homage or respect. Does our worship look like that? And the word proskuneo conveys also an outward physical expression of bowing as well as an inward bowing of the heart. And how different this is than what is common outwardly in churches today, where we sometimes stand. We rarely kneel. And we never lie prostrate before the Lord with our heads to the ground. We usually sit. And while the New Testament does not prescribe a specific means or form or even posture for worship... I think there's something within us that knows by nature that sitting is not the most ideal posture for conveying worship, reverence, homage, adoration toward another. When someone of great importance walks into a room, we do not stay seated but stand. When we are before other people in other cultures more often, bowing before a person who is revered or an elder is common. And so be encouraged, feel free to be physically in ways, postures, positions that are conducive in worship. May this be an orderly time and yet a time where we are free, where you are free as one body and as individuals to worship how God leads, to worship God how he leads you so that through your body we may convey to the God who is holy and majestic and worthy that we honor him. And how different proskuneo is than what is common inwardly in some churches today, in which it is not uncommon to see people like me sitting analytically, not engaged, disengaged, as observers rather than worshipers, Even bored rather than bowed. Are you with me? Presbyterians have far too long been known as the frozen chosen, in desperate need of a warming up. On the cover of your bulletin are the words of Claire Cloninger. She writes I must confess that there are days when my circumstances don't seem to lend themselves to worship. Have you ever had one of those days? Have you ever had one of those hours? Days when I feel so caught up in my own problems or so pulled down by my own depression that entering into worship would almost feel hypocritical. What am I to do on those days? On those days, I am to worship God anyway. I am to bring the Lord what the Bible calls sacrificial praise, quote from Hebrews. So through Jesus, let us always offer to God our sacrifice of praise coming from lips that speak his name. We're going to sing in a little bit. Stephen's going to lead us in singing and worship. Two things I want to close with. We're going to talk about this a little at Discover First Prayer, as I usually do. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? There are lots of definitions for that. Lots of, a, a, a Christian is a little Christ. A, a Christian is someone who's in Christ. A Christian is someone who follows Jesus. Or a Christian is someone who loves Jesus. Or, as we talked about on Christmas Eve, a Christian is someone who believes in Jesus. Or what if a Christian is someone who worships Jesus? Have you ever thought of that as the primary definition of a Christian? The Magi came to worship Jesus. Herod the Great not speaking truthfully expresses his interest also in the highest thing a person can do to worship this new king. It's interesting in Matthew's gospel because unlike the other gospels, Matthew begins by having these people bow before Jesus in worship. And at the very end, in the last chapter, several verses before what we know as the Great Commission, Jesus' disciples are bowed down, quote, worshiping him. And more often, as many as ten times throughout the book of Matthew, we see people bowed before Jesus in worship. This may be our greatest calling And what identifies us more than anything else. It is the thing for which we are made. It is the way that we are wired. It is to live in a reality where all things are rightly ordered. Where God is on his throne in our lives. And we are kneeling before him. Giving to him the honor and the glory and the worthiness. That is really his. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Help us, God, to learn from these people from the east who you brought to your son and who were from the beginning a paradigm or a model or an example for us. May we be as bowed down outwardly and inwardly, physically and spiritually, intellectually and emotionally, as they were toward you, giving to you all that we have, all that we are, loving you with heart, mind, soul, and strength. Be glorified, King. Amen.